This is the iMoveU podcast, getting you private practice ready. We give you fresh ideas on mindset, communication, and clinical skills so you can have a fulfilled career. What a time to be alive, episode 40 of the iMoveU podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm with Peter Flynn today. Pete's up from Adelaide. We did the iMoveU 200 event this morning. We had 127, hashtag 127, not 200, but it was still a bloody great day. I loved it. How are you, Pete? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Mick. And a great morning at the iMoveU, hashtag 127. Thanks to all who came. (laughs) Yep. Anything for the people who didn't? Where the fuck were you? Stitch up. Stitch up, mate. Uh, all right, so what we're going to do in today's episode is we got about 40 questions via Menti, uh, which is an awesome app that allows you to ask questions at an event, and we just didn't get through them. So we're going to answer the other 20 questions, and I think it'll bring a lot of value to young health professionals listening, because we all have the same questions when we're at uni or early in our career. So we've got about 20 questions here that we're going to go through, and we'll just answer them one by one, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I'll start. Uh, there's a common fear that I won't be a physio when I'm 40 and over. So where do you guys personally see yourself in 10 to 15 years' time? I'll let you start with that one, Mick. Oh, wow. Think about that. Wow. Uh, well, I think the things we spoke about today will help. And what we spoke about today was that if you attribute your fulfillment to your title, which is physio... That will lead to burnout. The key to having a long, healthy, fulfilling career is having a why and a purpose. So what we spoke about is for some of you, that will be physio and it will be getting busy uh, and it will be getting to an awesome spot. (laughs) It might be specializing and going back to uni. But what we also spoke about today is that physio can just be a vehicle to create a really fulfilling life outside of work. So some of our physios have created... The Freshman Physio, that's running podcast, side hustles, running holidays. Um, One of our physios loves investing in shares. He's quite honest about that. So how do you battle this thing that I'm going to stop doing physio when I'm 40? I think you need to have self-awareness, figure out what it is you really love, what lights you up. For some of you, that might be physio. If it's not physio, that's okay. It doesn't mean you stop being a physio. You can still be a physio and use it as a vehicle for other things. Uh, where do I see myself in 10 to 15 years' time? Well, I'm now passionate about leadership and helping my young team to achieve amazing things and create impact. So that's where I am, and I, I still hope to be there in 10 to 15 years. Anything from you, Pete? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually interested to know why you think that people won't be there. Like, is this a common thing? Because it's not a common thing that I've, that I've heard that people who are super passionate about physio they want to continue to progress and, and move as far as they can within the profession. And I think it's really up to you and, and your team, your employer, to sort of figure out what are the what are the pathways that you can be following? Like how can you be moving forwards and still being fulfilled? And finding growth, especially growth within your workplace there. Are you going to look for leadership opportunities, mentoring opportunities? Do you want to do the marketing, some social media? Do you want to step back and have more of a management role and be more involved in the business? I think those are the sorts of things that you want to be thinking about for 10, 15, 20 years down the track. What really lights your fire then is going to be different to what does now. 
And what's um, <clears throat> Tony Robbins talks about the needs? The six human needs, yeah. There's certainty and uncertainty is one. We need yeah. both. And is there one about variability or would you put that, that in the certainty, uncertainty category? Uh, that would be uncertainty, I believe, or maybe spontaneity. I can't remember off the top of my head, actually. Yeah, I'm tr- I've just pulled that out of nowhere. But I think that the, there's basic human needs and one of them is to have certainty at some points in your life and the other time is you need uncertainty, so we need variability. And I think that's what this speaks to, is making sure you've got good job variability. So I think that's how we stay healthy and happy in our career. I'll go to the next question. Uh, How do you have work-life balance in the first year after grad if self-learning is so emphasized? I think you really have to define what work-life balance is. And work-life balance is going to change through different parts of your life. Where you are now is going to change very differently in five years and what you feel is work-life balance will also be very, very different. To me, what work, work-life work balance is a fallacy. It's I'm happiest when I'm doing what I'm passionate about and that flows onto every other area of my life. When I'm doing what I'm passionate about, I'm happy when I'm with my friends, my family, partner, all those sorts of things. It really works well and it doesn't matter how many hours that I'm actually working it all comes down to, am I doing what's fulfilling me? Then I'm going to be happy in the other areas of my life. What are your thoughts, Mick? Good answer. Uh, I agree. I think traditionally, the traditional sense and meaning of work-life balance is I'm at work and then I come home and I can switch off and I can have a really good time. What Pete just said is if you're passionate about what you do, you don't feel this need to switch off or that when you're going home to read a journal or an anatomy book, that that's still work. You should be driven by that. So in the traditional sense, I would say you will not have work-life balance in your first year because you will be hustling. You'll be seeing patients. You'll be getting confused. You'll be wanting to come home and read journals. You'll be wanting to review your anatomy, your Bruckner and Kahn. You'll be wanting to go on the physio network. All of these things you have to do after work, which is usually six, seven, eight, nine o'clock. But that drives you. That was bloody exciting in my first year. I don't think I was ever as energetic as my first year as a physio. I loved going home and doing that hustle until nine o'clock because I really wanted to get better. Um, And I think it should be like that for at least two or three years, which is again what we spoke about today. Once you're kind of four or five years in and you're nailing your patients and you get more roster flexibility, at that point you may be able to build a more traditional sense of work-life balance. But in your first year, I think if we're talking about it from a traditional sense, it's probably unrealistic. Next question. That was a good one. Here's a good one. It seems that you guys are creating a revolution in the physio world. Thank you. How do you, can we deal with the resistance from the dinosaurs? I'm dealing with this at placement at the moment. Pete, how do we deal with dinosaurs? I think firstly, I really love dinosaurs and, you know, probably the T-Rex is my favourite actually. Huge fan of all the movies there. But in regards to physio, I think... The dinosaurs will die out. <clears throat> Apologies. I think that we are moving forwards and people are starting to listen. And I think that as we continue to <clears throat> as we continue to grow and as more and more people continue to understand that it's not just the, uh, the small bits of manual therapy that we do that affect change in someone's life. It's the whole package. And it's then focusing on what's part of that whole package. It starts in that welcome room beforehand. What's the experience they get? How can we improve that? And then goes into the treatment room where we create relationships with people. We spend time with people. 
It's no longer 15-minute appointments where you put a heat pack on, give them a bell. You know, that is the way of the old. The way of the new is going much longer. In fact, I'm really excited that I, every person I talked to at the event today said they do 30-minute follow-up appointments. And 10 years ago, I couldn't find one person that did follow-up appointments. So I'm really, really excited. Things are moving, moving in the right direction there. Yes, there will be dinosaurs. Yes, you will have to jump through some hoops at uni. But at the end of the day, once you finish, you get to decide how you're going to treat. You get to decide how you're going to help people moving forwards. And it comes, up, it comes down to us, essentially. Because in 20 years' time, those dinosaurs won't still be there. And then it just comes down to how do we treat? How do we want to move forwards as a profession? And that excites me. Nick? Yeah, I like it. Not much to add. All I would, all I would say is that you should never be dictated to about your treatment. So I understand we have a boss and we have an employer or a senior, but they should never dictate and say, you need to do treatment like this. I completely disagree. In fact, someone asked earlier what a red flag would be. That would be a red flag. If your senior or mentor isn't allowing you to explore treatment options with guidance, obviously within an evidence-based framework and with guidance, then I think that's a, that's a red flag. Uh, I, I love introducing a bunch of concepts and a bunch of different people to my young physios, but at the end, you need to let them decide how they treat. So I don't think you should have to deal with dinosaurs. They'll, they'll be around. They'll have an old-school treatment mentality. There aren't that many left. And if they do, they shouldn't be dictating. So I, don't, I really think we don't have to deal with them is the answer. Treat how you want to treat. The next question, uh, when will new grads... <laughs> put more importance on communication skills over manual therapy techniques? I think it's, it's starting to happen now and it's only happening because people are talking about it. No one talks in uni, or at least they didn't when I was there, about how important communication is. I just assume that my manual therapy, my exercise therapy, that's what cured people. And I, I, I just thought that I didn't actually have to create that relationship really well with someone in order to make them do it. I thought if I gave them the best ever exercise program that they would go and do it and they'd be better. And that was a huge learning for me. When I left and I gave people the best exercise program and said, see you in six weeks, you're going to be better. And then they didn't do it once. And I started to realize that I'm not treating an injury. I'm treating a human. And I have to treat the human first. I have to create a relationship. I have to build trust. And without that, then none of the other stuff works. I really have to get on top of that first. That was a huge realization for me. And how do we create trust? How do we create a relationship? It's how we communicate with that person. And if we genuinely care about them and listen and hear them out and then involve them in the decision-making and communicate this really, really well, then I think we can be successful. So I think that it's starting to catch on now and more and more I'm getting people inquire to me about the iMove, the iMove You group, the iMove You courses, because that's what we're about. And the whole reason we started this was because there just wasn't anything like that. And we felt like this is a massive hole in the industry here because no one's talking about it and no one's helping people do this. And I think that in the coming, you know, five, ten years, you'll see a lot more groups, a lot more courses like I'm of you come. And I'm not threatened by that. I'm really excited that that's going to help the industry as a whole. What are your thoughts, Mike? I have nothing to add. I think you answered it perfectly. I agree. It's starting to happen more and more, and it will be uh, courses like iMovie will start to put it front and center, and I'm already starting to see it in other courses as well. I'll just ask this question as an extension of that one because it links in. 
what's the best way to become a really good communicator and how much emphasis should I put on that versus manual skills? So it's just an extension of that. I'll answer that one. So the best way to become a good communicator is what we do at our courses, which is film yourself delivering a management plan or delivering a diagnosis, whatever that might be, and then watch it back. Do we get you to watch it back and we give you the tips on how to improve that? We use a principle we learned from Vin Zhang, who's got an amazing communication group called The Stage, which you should all join. And in that, he teaches you how to go back and analyze your footage and make your communication better. And it can be improved. It can be improved very quickly. Um, Just today, we had someone in our group say that I don't think these things can be improved. But we see it time and time again. People improve it within five minutes. You've got the technology, which is your smartphone. And the technique is sight, sound, sync, which I won't go into, but it's what we do at our courses. So your communication skills can absolutely be improved and improved quickly. How much emphasis should you put on it compared to your manual skills? I think a lot more than what is now. So, you know, if I had to put a number on it, I would go 75, 25. I think we need more focus on mindset, communication, and the manual skills will come. The, the problem right now is the waiting is so off. We put so much value in manual skills and courses. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's still really important to be good with your hands and be able to provide some value in the short term. But the waiting is so far off. So I'm going to say 75% on communication skills is where we need to start to progress. And it's so easy and it can be done quickly. It can be done quicker than doing a two-day manual therapy course. Uh, I'll go to the next question for you, Pete. So Let's do it. Do you experience any uncertainty regarding which area of practice to pursue, private versus hospital? And do you have any tips to reflect and work through this if you're unsure? I personally, I mean, this is a a very personal choice here. Everyone's going to be very different and there's no right or wrong. You just have to run it through your filter. Personally, I I just decided on the type of clientele. (coughs) Sorry. On the type of clientele that I wanted to work with and the type of environment that I want to work in. And for me, I want to work within a a reasonably small business, like a small team, where it had a great culture and a culture of really winning, moving forwards, helping people, and also supporting each other. And I really saw that as being private practice for me. And the types of patients that I wanted to see were were mainly going to be active, sports-based people personally, and I would most likely find them in, in private practice too. Now, I have friends that work in the public system and they love it. They absolutely love it because that's what they're passionate about. It's not what I'm passionate about and I wouldn't love it if I worked there. But it's such a personal thing that I, I don't think anyone can actually answer that for you whether one's going to be better than the other without really understanding you know, what fulfills you and what drives you. And there's nothing, there's nothing that says that you can't do one and then swap to the other. However, talking to people who have done the swaps it is a lot harder to swap from the public system to the private system. It is a much harder jump to make. So keep that in mind. Mm. I think for me, I, I really wanted autonomy. And I think deep down, you just know um, if you're someone who likes very strict structure and taking orders and, and you're very structured in your life and you like checklists and tick boxes, I, I just feel like that's the hospital system. I was always someone who liked to think on my feet, be autonomous, create my ideal client. Uh, it's almost like having a small business is exciting in that sense, going to private practice. So I always knew that for myself deep down that I wanted to create autonomy. And to me, that was private practice. 
The second thing I would add is if you're asking this question, it's because you don't know and you don't know because you haven't experienced it. And this is the problem with uni at the moment. You're all experiencing hospital, but there's just not enough private practice placements. So how you will get to your answer is go and do some private practice shadowing. Just go call up your local five private practices and go hang out with them. You'll get 15 weeks of hospital experience at uni. Go and get five to 10 weeks of private practice experience, and then you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Perfect. Uh, all right, all right. We've got 10 questions to go. Wow. <laughs> maybe we maybe we split it and we do a part two. So let's go for two more, yeah. and we'll save the 10 questions for another one. Uh What's a good way to communicate to a patient who has had chronic back pain and has tried multiple practitioners? Well, a great way to communicate that is they have tried multiple practitioners and it's just, I think initially it's going to be understanding and listening and letting them tell you their story. Too often in that initial consult, we try and give a lot of advice and it is great advice. I guarantee it's great advice. But it's hard to give really, really good advice until you've developed a relationship and trust with that person there. So I think if you can spend a lot of that time really listening to them, understanding what they've been through, understanding what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what they believe will work, and really understanding their beliefs around especially chronic back pain, what is their belief around that? Because if we can start, really start to understand that, that's where we'll start to make a difference. And, you know, a really, really interesting study that I looked at recently that Greg Lehman uh, posted up, it looked at the effect of active listening. So no advice, but just listening to someone for two lots of one hour sessions versus two lots of one hour sessions of really good pain education. And what it found at the end was there was no difference in outcomes. They both improved equally. So the great pain science education, and I love pain science education, don't throw it away, you know, had an improvement but they had the same improvement from just listening to these people and really making them feel heard. And to me, that's one of the most important parts of someone who's come in, seen multiple practitioners, because I can almost guarantee the one thing those practitioners didn't do was listen to this person and really hear their story. And once you understand their story, you know where they're at, then you can start to move forwards. Then you can build that relationship. Once you've built that relationship, you can challenge their beliefs but make sure you build that relationship with them first. Nice, mate. I love it. Nothing to add. I'll roll us into the last question, and that'll leave us with 10 questions for another episode. Uh, This question, much of the focus has been on active patient populations. So this is talking about our course and what we do in the group. Uh, Could you share your experiences when working with a business who sees a vastly different population? For example, patients who who do not have private health insurance. Uh, I'd probably start by saying this question really annoys me because so many times we've, we've covered this in the sense that that's a block that you are putting up. You're putting up this block that, oh, their patient population must be different or oh, that population can afford treatment or that population cares about their health more than this population. And what we spruik a lot at the course and what we do in our videos online is it's not about that. Do not place any judgments on the people in front of you. That is not your job. Your job is to deliver the best management plan for that person in front of you. And it's okay for that person to reject that because of external circumstances. It's going to happen. That happens in our population. But humans are humans. We have to communicate the same way. We have to deliver the best management plan. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic status they're in. It still takes 8 to 12 weeks to get physiological change. 
That's not going to change. It doesn't matter what population you're dealing with. If they're on EPC versus they've got private health versus they've got no private health or no EPC, we still rebook the same way. And that's because that's the way we believe to get the best outcome. So there's some brilliant cash PTs in America where they've just left the compensable system because they're sick of dealing with it. They're sick of being deal, dealt with by the insurance companies. They're like, I'm just going to cash. It's $200 a session to see me cash. And they get great results. They have ideal clients. They have raving fans. They book the same way we talk about. They get outcomes. They see patients for 8 to 12 weeks. So what I would say in response to this question is take down the barriers to patient population, finances, education, and just deliver your best damn plan for every person, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Anything that? I, I love what you said there. And just to reinforce, our best management plan that we give that person should not be based off of how much money we think they have. Absolutely not. Everyone deserves the same level of healthcare. Everyone, regardless of financial status. If you disagree with that, I feel you should probably not be in the allied health. Wow. What an ending. We'll leave it there and we'll answer the last 10 questions from iMoveview's 200 event, which was today. We'll answer that on episode 41. Thanks, Pete. Thank you for having me. This is the iMoveView podcast, getting you private practice ready. We give you fresh ideas on mindset, communication and clinical skills so you can have a fulfilled career.